One afternoon in 1977, seven men were packing heat in Miami. They faced off over a table in an unassuming condo. On one side sat 34-year-old veteran drug smuggler George Young and his business partner, 27-year-old Carlos Leda. Their pilots joined them as well. Opposite the trio sat four Colombian gangsters, all sipping beers. Their guns were obvious on their belts, even as they feigned casualness. They each side-eyed the two suitcases on the table, containing $1.25 million in cash, payment for the 125 kilos of pure, uncut cocaine waiting in a car downstairs. George and the pilot carefully counted out the bills, not too quickly. They didn't want to seem anxious. While everyone else watched the money, Carlos kept his eyes trained on the four Colombians, especially the ones still wearing his suit jacket. To wear a jacket in this heat meant he had more firepower hidden under there. The money seemed to add up, but George knew protocol was to count it twice, just to be sure. His pilot nodded. The money was all there. With that, he slowly took out the car keys and set them on the table. George and Carlos held their breath. One wrong move and the Colombians would mow them down, double-crossing them to take both the cocaine and the cash. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode in a four-part series about cocaine traffickers George Young and Carlos Later Rivas. These two misfit criminals, one American and one Colombian, would team up in the late 1970s to flood the U.S. with cocaine. Their fame culminated in working with the infamous Pablo Escobar to build the Medellin cartel. During this first episode, we'll learn how George and Carlos got into their respective lives of crime and how these two unlikely hustlers got into business together. It's a wonder that George and Carlos were able to build such a successful illegal business, considering what an odd couple they were. The two were loyal as brothers, bonded in their desire for money and status, yet their attitudes towards smuggling were polar opposites. Carlos was obsessive, detail-oriented, and quietly manipulative. George, on the other hand, was an overconfident adrenaline junkie. 
He only thought as far ahead as where the next party was. It made sense then that their plans for the profits were also quite different. George wanted to have fun, afford a luxurious lifestyle, and have tangible proof he was successful. But Carlos was a bit more quixotic. He had visions of grandeur and wanted to take on the world. Take one example from April 1977. Five years in, their partnership had become incredibly lucrative. Carlos had brought his family up to Cape Cod on a trip to visit George. Naturally, Carlos always wanted to check out the finer things, so he suggested they pop by the local BMW dealership. 34-year-old George kept a low profile, having been a Cape Cod local for years. Still, he loved fast cars and was happy to tag along with Carlos. His 27-year-old business partner was a bit of an auto-savant. Carlos's family even had a dealership and body shop in Colombia. But it was hard to get the latest American and European cars, so, naturally, a Massachusetts BMW outpost was like a candy shop. Carlos made a beeline for a black 318i sports car as soon as they got there. How much did it cost? Assuming the two men were just browsing, a salesman told them it'd be around $11,000, worth over $45,000 today. Carlos shrugged and nodded. That number sounded right, so he took out a paper bag full of cash and counted out $11,000 for the salesman. Both George and the sales rep were shocked. Paying in cash was one thing, but it was clear that $11,000 barely made a dent in the bills in Carlos's paper bag. Off this, George broke his usually placid composure. He pulled his partner outside and demanded to know what he was doing. Carlos pushed back, confused. He didn't see anything wrong with the transaction. He wanted the car. In fact, he planned to cruise by another dealership afterwards and snag a flashy car for his wife. That was the point of earning all this money, he told George, to spend it and make sure people knew you had it. George didn't disagree on principle, but he explained to Carlos that this wasn't the time or place to make a splash. People in Massachusetts would notice. After all, that salesman was never going to forget the Colombian guy who walked in and paid cash for a BMW sports car, no questions asked. And it certainly didn't make matters better that Carlos wasn't even legally allowed into the United States. Carlos brushed these concerns off. While he did agree not to buy a car for his wife that day, he wasn't done shopping. He still wanted to check out some property elsewhere on the Cape. His mum might like a house. Carlos's desire to be splashy and George's instinct to fly under the radar made sense in light of their backgrounds. George Young grew up in the 1940s in Weymouth, Massachusetts, a suburban fishing town south of Boston. They were the portrait of America. His father owned a heating oil business, his mother often worked in clothing retail, and his older sister was a star student. The Youngs lived comfortably, though money was still often a source of conflict. George's father, Fred, gambled, which only made the chip on his shoulder worse when his older brother, an engineer, tried to help out with family expenses. 
Between Fred's gambling and less-than-lavish income, money strained George's parents' relationship. By the time George was in junior high, his mother, Ermin, regularly threatened to leave. Though she never did, her disappointment with the family's financial situation never went away. Given his surroundings, it made sense that George inherited his father's penchant for adrenaline rushes and his mother's frustration for budgets. Though his childhood was average, George's attitude started to suffer at school. Undiagnosed ADHD meant he struggled to focus and his grades plummeted. All of this made him feel he couldn't meet expectations, so he often pushed back against authority. Going into high school, George decided to prove himself by becoming a football star. He worked hard to make the varsity squad. But the sheen wore off when he discovered the coach's strict rules, including a curfew and a minimum GPA. George didn't like being told what to do, especially when it infringed on partying with his friends and taking girls out. Soon he was skipping practice and cheating in school. In 1957, Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road came out. For 16-year-old George, it gave him a sense of direction. He dreamed of hitchhiking around the country, living on the edge of society, and trying new things. He craved the excitement and adventure Kerouac suggested. In line with his new desires, George cultivated a James Dean-type persona, he often stayed out drinking until the wee morning hours and raced cars with his friends. Thriving on the adrenaline rush, whenever he got caught, George always managed to talk his way out of trouble. It wasn't until his senior year that George suddenly realized that his devil-may-care lifestyle was about to expire. With dismal grades and a failed scheme to have a friend take his SATs for him, college was nearly impossible. George wound up working construction in Weymouth for the next few years. His only chance to get out, a year-long stint at the University of Southern Mississippi, ended when he was caught running a racket selling long-distance calls on a corporate telephone credit card. By 1965, when George was 23, he and a few other friends who felt equally stuck bought a car and headed west to California. Leaving his average years behind, he'd finally fulfill his Kerouac dreams of adventure. 1965 Long Beach, just south of Los Angeles, was a cultural revelation for George. He could hang out at the beach all day with unfettered access to drugs. He'd already gotten into marijuana over the last couple years, but in Southern California, he discovered LSD and the burgeoning drug trade. George tried working construction to make some fast cash, but quickly realized that selling cannabis was far more lucrative and fun. His natural charisma meant he soon knew plenty of friends looking to score. He expanded his social network until he knew the carriers and suppliers themselves who were moving premium-grade product up from Mexico. Before long, George was making good money. He could have eased off and enjoyed his spoils, but he wasn't ready to rest on his laurels. Late in 1967, when George was 25, a friend visiting from Massachusetts kept complimenting the quality of cannabis George was selling. Back East, 
they were buying stuff at six times the price and a quarter the quality. This piqued George's interest immediately. There was no better time to grow his business. Coming up, George takes his business and life into his own hands. And later, we meet Carlos Leda, the Colombian known as Crazy Charlie. Now, back to the story. By 1967, up-and-coming drug smuggler George Young had convinced his girlfriend, a Transworld Airlines flight attendant, to take a couple of suitcases loaded with 20 kilos of marijuana with her from L.A. to Boston. There, his friend picked them up and took them back to his college in Western Massachusetts, where he sold the product wholesale. Business skyrocketed. Within months, the demand had far exceeded the amount that George's girlfriend could carry on flights. George started renting Winnebago's and driving as many as 275 pounds across the country on his own. After paying out to all the other players and accounting for expenses, he was still making up to $10,000 a trip, over $75,000 today. For the first time in his life, George had a thick pile of cash to burn and he liked it. He bought himself a Ford Thunderbird, reveling in his newfound status. When he controlled the marijuana supply, everyone wanted to be his friend. It was a feeling he hadn't felt since high school. By the summer of 1968, he decided it was time to expand the business even further. It was clear he'd make more money by cutting out the middlemen and sourcing the marijuana himself, which meant going to Mexico and buying it directly from the farmers. The only question then was how to get it back into the U.S. without getting caught. George determined that the safest way would be to fly the product back to the U.S. and land on a deserted airstrip where a truck would be waiting. All he had to do was learn how to fly a small plane a challenge George relished. 30 hours of flying lessons later, George chartered a small plane to Puerto Vallarta in Western Mexico. He'd already gone down to make contacts and had made a deal with a local supplier. His first flight started well enough. The plane couldn't make the trip in one go, so George took a buddy with him. His friend would wait at an airstrip about halfway with a bunch of fuel tins and help George gas up on the return flight. The first two legs of the trip were smooth. George landed at his destination and loaded up nearly half a ton of cannabis. But when he descended to the stopover point on his return trip, he realized that the plane was having trouble handling the extra weight. The landing was a rough one, and George fought to keep the plane upright wishing he'd practiced his landings a bit more. Still, this paled compared to what came next. When George flew across the border back to the US, he realized he'd taken a wrong turn. He was supposed to cross over Mexicali, but ended up over Tijuana, which was much further west. He had to backtrack east in order to land where he'd left his truck and another buddy, and he didn't have much time the sun would set soon. George worried if it got dark, he wouldn't be able to find his truck. Though his despair was growing, miraculously, he soon spotted the white patch between the mountain passes and his truck. 
As he descended through the peaks, turbulence buffeted the plane. When George finally somehow landed, he shuddered with relief. He took a breath and then let himself enjoy the adrenaline rush come down. He was going to be rich. While George Young's American dream was profiting off the counterculture movements of the late 1960s, life was a bit different in Colombia. Decades before, a civil war had broken out in 1948. It lasted nearly 10 years and paved the way for more than half a century of violence. Carlos Enrique Leda Rivas was born into this chaos in 1949, the youngest child of a German father and Colombian mother. His father had immigrated to Colombia in the late 1920s to find work as an engineer. When he found a sizable German community in the city of Armenia, southwest of Medellin, he stayed. However, Carlos's parents weren't happily married. When Carlos was four years old, his parents divorced after his mother accused his father of physically abusing her. She took her four children and started a boarding house that catered to Germans. She maintained some hope that her kids could at least be exposed to their paternal heritage that way. Despite their limited relationship after the divorce, Carlos still idolized his father, as well as the Germans who rented from his mother. Many of them were former Nazis who'd escaped to South America after their defeat in World War II. The boarders weren't shy about waxing poetic about the late Adolf Hitler and the glory of the Third Reich. Young Carlos lapped up their stories, and soon he idolized Hitler and his leadership style. He envisioned a man who knew how to get what he wanted. Not knowing the danger, Carlos internalized Hitler's lessons, believing that taking advantage of the weaknesses of others was the way to get ahead in life. Carlos dreamed of the day when people would look to him as a visionary. He was sure that he was more clever than those around him. If he could just learn from the experience of the great men who'd gone before him, he'd be able to exploit the system. Carlos didn't mind climbing over others on his way to the top. Growing up in a war-torn country only fueled these conclusions. As his countrymen killed each other, Carlos developed a cynical view of humanity. Watching families fight for survival, he decided that morality was relative and crime was necessary in a corrupt world. All that mattered was getting ahead for yourself and your family. Everyone else was collateral damage. Even his family reinforced these views. Though his mother ran a legitimate business, Carlos's older brother Guillermo started up a car dealership in Medellin in the late 50s called Autos Leda. The dealership specialized in American cars, which were in high demand in Colombia. And while some of these cars were imported legally, the majority were stolen abroad and smuggled in. The tariffs were so steep that it was a better deal to bribe Colombian customs to fake the import papers than it was to go through legitimate processes. Around 1964, when George Young was about to head out to California for the first time, Carlos's mother decided she had to get 15-year-old Carlos away from the crime and violence of Medellin, Colombia. The factional guerrilla warfare that would rack the country for the next few decades was just starting. 
She wanted to give him a better life before the opportunity was gone. So she packed up and took him with her to where she knew there was a burgeoning Colombian community, New York City. Carlos flourished in New York, reveling in the relative wealth of the United States. He quickly realized that there were far more opportunities there and more money to be made than people in Colombia realized, and he was determined to make the most of it. Over the next several years, Carlos started to dip his toe into New York's illegal markets. He sold some marijuana around town, but for the most part, the Colombian organized crime groups that Carlos idolized weren't spending a lot of time on piecemeal drug trades. They cared more about what was going into Colombia, not out. They used their U.S. branches as satellite offices to smuggle goods into South America. These groups included his brother Guillermo and his car dealership Autos Later. Carlos may not have known all the details of his brother's car smuggling before, but now that he was in New York, he wanted in on the operation. With an introduction from his brother, Carlos joined the network of Colombian car thieves and smugglers in New York. As a teenager, his first job was to steal cars from wealthier neighborhoods. The newer and more expensive the car, the more they could charge for it back in Colombia. With his foot in the door, Carlos threw himself into learning everything he could about cars. He wanted to be an expert on the products he was stealing to guarantee that he was getting the best ones. As he grew older and more seasoned, Carlos advanced to driving cars he stole across the border to Canada, where they'd be shipped to Colombia. Always the opportunist, he made sure to memorize the smuggling routes, shipping lanes, and which officials could be paid off. Carlos's insatiable appetite for knowledge was undeniable. But he also believed that he was simply smarter and more capable than everyone he worked with. Carlos didn't just want to improve upon their methods for the sake of efficiency. He wanted to prove he was the best. And clearly, he was mastering the process. He made it all the way until 1971 before getting caught, when he was stopped on Long Island, New York. There, he was charged with unauthorized possession of a motor vehicle. Leaning on his baby face and apologetic charm, 22-year-old Carlos tried to talk his way out of the charges. As it was his first infraction, the court gave him a rap on the knuckles and warned him not to do it again. Carlos promised to stay out of trouble, though, of course, he had no intention of slowing his climb up the ladder. By this time, 29-year-old George Young had continued his own ascent, having built a successful cannabis smuggling and wholesale business. He'd made connections with farmers around northern Mexico and put together a team of American pilots and distributors to get the marijuana to California. From there, it was sold around the U.S. But in late 1970, George made his first real mistake. He slipped up his usual bribery scheme and didn't pay off the right police. Next thing he knew, he was arrested in the Mexican state of Mazatlan. He managed to make a deal with the local officer in charge. 
The agreement was that one of his guys in Los Angeles would bring down $50,000, about $333,000 today, to pay off both the cop and the judge. Unfortunately, a Mexican federal prosecutor wanted to make an example of the American drug trafficker. He took a vested interest in George's case and made it a front-page story. The local officer and the judge were irritated at the possibility of losing their commissions, so they promised George they'd get him out of jail in three months if he still paid them. While it was a steep deal, George had no interest in languishing indefinitely in a Mexican prison, especially when his cannabis business needed to be run. He took it. Still, that meant he spent the next three months getting to know the criminals of Mazatlan. But unlike many who would have dreaded this day, George made the most of his experience. By the time he was out of prison, George had befriended a fellow marijuana trafficker named Manuel, a big shot in the local mafia. Tough but loyal, Manuel liked George too. He made it clear they were brothers and that they could do well being in business together, which of course they did. From early 1971, the two men split their profits 50-50. Manuel had deals set up with all the farmers in the area who sold to him directly. George and his guys would then fly down from California and load up their planes. From there, they'd ferry the cannabis back across the border. George finished the chain by distributing to his buyers in the U.S., and the money started to pour in. Before long, George was emulating Manuel's macho cowboy aesthetic, wearing a Stetson, smoking cigars, and carrying a pistol on his belt. This was the Wild West, the adventure he dreamed of back in Massachusetts. But George was getting in the habit of challenging himself not to settle. Why would he when he could go bigger? He controlled practically every part of the supply chain except the planes, which he still rented for a hefty fee. In theory, he could buy planes, but that would leave a paper trail. So he thought, why not just steal the planes? Soon, he was stealing private planes to fly his product around the US for delivery, then ferrying new shipments back from Mexico. He was moving more cannabis than ever before. But the good times couldn't last forever. George's high briefly came crashing down at the Chicago Playboy Club in September of 1972. Unbeknownst to him, he sold 660 pounds of marijuana to a rich kid, who then made the mistake of selling heroin to an undercover cop. Hoping to cut a deal, the kid ratted on George. Shortly after, two federal agents arrested George at the club. After pleading not guilty, George made bail, just in time to skip town and head back to L.A. He had every intention of continuing his activities. But being charged with a federal crime meant he was now a federal fugitive. The FBI was now tracking him, meaning his days of flying under the radar were numbered. Coming up, Carlos and George cross paths by fortuitous accident and reshape the history of North America. Now, back to the story. 
1973, 31-year-old George Young was a fugitive from the FBI, trying to continue his cannabis smuggling business without getting thrown back in jail. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, 24-year-old Carlos Leda Rivas was still stealing cars for his brother's semi-legitimate dealership in Medellin. They were both operating on borrowed time. In 1972, a year after Carlos had managed to get out of a felony auto theft charge, he was caught and arrested while smuggling a car from Michigan across the border into Ontario, Canada. This time, he didn't wait around to find out what would happen. He skipped bail. He headed south to Miami, where he'd already built connections through his Colombian organized crime experience. There, he at least felt safe enough to jump back into two things he knew best, stealing cars and selling cannabis. Miami quickly became a mecca for Carlos. There, he started a whole new education in cocaine. Though it had long been popular in Colombia, the party drug was gaining demand in Miami, New York, and Los Angeles. Carlos heard from the Colombian organized crime groups that cocaine was a major product for them back home, but they were wary of the risk of breaking into the U.S. market. Still, Carlos had a suspicion it was well worth it. He didn't know much about the product and its supply chain, to be sure, but he could quickly find out. So, Carlos did what he did best, learn as much as he could from whoever would talk to him. Piece by piece, he built himself a picture of the cocaine market. Carlos discovered that while the drugs sold for four to $5,000 a kilo in Colombia, the same amount was selling for as much as $60,000 a kilo in the US. Today, that's a difference between $23,000 to $30,000 and $350,000. If Carlos understood one thing, it was numbers. And given that type of margin, if he could make the right connections in both Colombia and the U.S., Carlos could revolutionize the market. He let his mind race forward, picturing himself as the visionary leader who changed the game. He was going to get rich and make the Colombian mobsters and the American smugglers alike respect him for it. As the man in charge, he'd finally have the clout and status that he longed for. Between selling marijuana and stealing cars by day and studying cocaine by night, Carlos managed to live under the radar for most of 1973. But despite his hustle, Carlos's luck ran out later that year. He was caught for the minor charge of marijuana possession. Combined with his bail jumping record, though, it was enough to land him a 20-month stay in a federal prison. There was no charming his way out of this mess. Around the same time, George was also doing his best to dodge the law. Still, he had a soft spot for family. When he was in Massachusetts meeting with a new distribution contact, he decided to make a pit stop to visit his parents. He wasn't ignorant, though. He suspected that the FBI might be tapping their phone or watching the house. So he showed up without any notice. George's instinct was dead on. His surprised parents told him that the FBI had been around looking for him. But lifestyle choices aside, his parents were still happy to see him. His father cracked open a bottle of scotch, and George regaled them with stories of California 
careful to leave out the bits about his business. Suddenly, there was banging on the door. Men started yelling, FBI, open up. George panicked and ran upstairs as his parents ran around the living room in a flurry. But there was nowhere to go. Within minutes, George had been taken into federal custody, facing the sobering possibility of more than six years in prison. Lucky for him, marijuana's growing popularity meant the weight of the charges had somewhat lessened. After some haggling to lower the bail jumping charge, George's lawyer managed to get him a three-year sentence in a low-security federal prison. Of course, despite knowing he had to go along with the deal, George couldn't suppress his lack of respect for authority. At his sentencing hearing, he told the judge that he didn't actually think he'd done anything wrong. From George's perspective, no one had been hurt, and cannabis was going to be legal soon anyway. Within minutes, George had been sentenced to a four-year stay in prison. At just 31, George was sent to the Federal Correction Institute in Danbury, Connecticut, in the spring of 1974. He went through the intake process like everyone else, though he was probably one of the few trading his designer clothes for prison-issue garb. He was then taken to the dorm where new arrivals spent their first two weeks acclimating. George had just sat down on a bed and started to scope out the scene when a short, slim young man came over. Was the bed next to him free? George nodded, but didn't invite more conversation. He'd been in prison before, in Mexico no less. He knew better than to just make friends with the first guy who talked to him. The dark-haired young man sat down across from George and formally offered his hand. With a slight accent, he said, how do you do? My name is Carlos Leda. With that handshake, George quickly discovered what everyone discovered about Carlos. He was friendly, charming, and easy to talk to. His mild demeanor made people feel like they'd known him forever. Sure, Carlos was a bit odd, but that only added to his charisma. And combined with his accent, it made him seem all the more interesting. When Carlos asked George what he was in Danbury for, George mentioned his cannabis operation. Carlos was immediately awed. His own marijuana conviction was nothing compared to George's. He wanted to hear all about George's experience. Though it was unexpected attention, George relished it. He actually wanted to chat. As he started explaining how he got his product from Mexico to the US, Carlos mentioned that he too had some experience with smuggling between countries. With a wry smile, he told George about the car trafficking operation he'd been caught stealing for. Before long, the two were swapping stories and making plans, quickly becoming friends. The kismet of making a friend on the first day of prison wasn't lost on George. He figured he'd meet other people in the drug trade while he was in Danbury, but this was an entirely surprising and pleasant turn. If prison was unavoidable, maybe he really could use the time to expand his business. It was going to be a long few years without the adrenaline rush of his flights to Mexico, and he wanted to make sure he'd be getting those highs again when he got out. Carlos, too, couldn't believe his luck. The odds of meeting an experienced smuggler with contacts like George, let alone on day one of doing time, were incredible. The more he and George talked, 
the more Carlos was sure that this tall blonde cowboy was just the person he needed to be his business partner. A few hours flew by and soon the new arrivals were herded down to the cafeteria. As they waited, Carlos debated whether or not to tell his new friend about his big idea. But he was so excited he just couldn't wait. Carlos turned to George and asked, George, do you know anything about cocaine? Little did either of them know how much that question would change their lives. But if the glint in George's eye was any indication, there was a lot in store for the future business partners. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Carlos and George finally got their operation off the ground and how they jumped into business with some of the most dangerous men in Colombia. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Hold up. 